Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Hello, my name is Eileen Anderson. I'm uh, really pleased to be here today to be able to talk about some of the work that we've been doing in my lab over the last eight or 10 years of funding um, through CIRM. I want to just thank CIRM for providing the funding to support this meeting and also all of the folks, the boots on the ground that have participated in organizing. It's an enormous effort to put together a virtual conference like this in the middle of a pandemic. And so uh, a real shout out there. I think one thing that's quite critical in that regard is conveying this kind of information, both to our colleagues at um, uh, at conferences like this one and, and others that are more scientific is critical, but also having this conversation with the public is something that's really important about the grant holders meeting. And so I hope that I'm able to convey that line in this talk. So speaking both to the public and conveying some useful information and my colleagues have to bear with me a little bit if I'm a, a bit less technical and less detailed than you might find in a normal talk. So the title of my talk today is Human Neural Stem Cell Efficacy and Repair, but actually I kind of struggled with this. What I really wanted to call it is the way stem cells work. Why? Because this is a great book, if none of you have read it. It talks about the background of the physics and the design parameters of how things around us in everyday life and you know even going back to the Middle Ages function, and that that's really important. So if we were going to try and build a mousetrap or a trebuchet, we wouldn't just put all the pieces next to one another and hope that they would self-assemble. And we can't do that with stem cells either. We need to understand some very basic aspects of these cells, which were really discovered very recently. And this is a field that has launched forward incredibly quickly over the last 15 years. But we have to remember that we need to be able to um, understand the basic biology in order to move forward. So, in that uh, context, with that background, very early on when I was starting up my lab at University of California, Irvine, I worked on spinal cord injury and trying to understand mechanisms of damage and how we could get to repair. And I had the opportunity to work with human neural stem cell transplantation to see if we could produce repair after injury by transplanting these cells. So in our animal models, in fact, we found this to be awfully successful. So shown in the panel uh, to one side is vehicle, where we have an animal that has not received any cells, and she's not capable of doing stepping really with her hind limbs, only very occasionally. On the other side, though, the animal that received a human neural stem cell transplant is consistently able to move her hind limbs. She's stepping very well. She's moving with coordination. It's a large difference in terms of functional performance between those two animals. Very exciting from our initial studies. In fact, that work was so exciting that over the next eight years or so, from 2002 to 2010, we worked and did a lot of preclinical work um, with our collaborators to try and enable that to go forward into testing in a human clinical trial. And that happened. In 2010, this study was launched um, with Armin Kurt and uh, Mike Failings as the principal investigators. And in fact, what it found was that transplantation of human neural stem cells in 
chronic thoracic spinal cord injuries. So individuals that were not just injured, but really the most challenging thing that we can think about doing for people that might live with a, a lifetime of disability. There were some preliminary efficacy measures, mainly in terms of sensation, which is what's shown in the diagram panel. But in fact, this was sufficient that even after a six-year retrospective, which was just published from Dr. Kurt and his group, the conclusion was that spinal cord injury and the damaged spinal cord may may still be a suitable target for stem cell transplantation, that preliminary efficacy measures held up, and that there's promise here in terms of moving forward to the clinic. But what we know from other work in my lab is this isn't always the case. It's not uniform. In fact, in my lab using preclinical studies with a different cell line, we've found that those sometimes fail, and we don't know why. That really is the essence of what I want to talk about today, trying to understand and the need to understand how the interplay of basic science and knowing how stem cells work interacts with our facility, our ability to go forward with an effective stem cell population into the clinic. So understanding why stem cells behave in specific ways is important at both the basic science level and in terms of clinical translation. So before we go on with that, we need to know a little bit in terms of terms and basic science terms. All stem cells occupy a place in the environment, and in stem cell biology, we call this a niche. So in this diagram, we show a basic niche. It's good enough for our purposes. The idea is that it's a place in three-dimensional space where a cell sits and a basic stem cell that's sitting within it. So an important concept to understand from that analogy is that niche can be different, it can vary, or it can change over time. So if we look at different types of niches, you can get the idea. There might be different components within them. In terms of the basic biology of how cells work, this would be different molecules, different parts of infrastructure, so different types of substrates that the cells could come into contact with, and that a niche could be subject to different states of either damage or repair or being built. And those all present a different environment and different signals that are conveyed to cells that are going to affect how they behave. By that same token, no two cell lines are identical. Cells themselves have properties that define them, even if they're in the same category of cells. So we work with human neural stem cells in my lab, but one line and another line can't be assumed to be the same, even if they're in the same category. There are going to be intrinsic variation between them. And so let's introduce those two terms. There are extrinsic factors that are a part of the niche, the niche itself and how different it might be, the state of repair or damage or regeneration that it's in, and intrinsic properties that go with the cells themselves. Those extrinsic and intrinsic signals control stem cell behavior. And those are really important aspects of some key stem cell behaviors, including maintenance and self-renewal, whether those cells the stem cells themselves are able to make more stem cells and maintain themselves over time, whether they survive in their normal niche or after we transplant them. Lineage restriction and cell differentiation and fate. In other words, what those cells can become and whether it's productive potentially in terms of repair. So in the case of a neural stem cell, the three things a neural stem cell can become is a neuron, an oligodendrocyte, or an astrocyte. And cues around it and the intrinsic properties of the cells are going to determine what proportion of those three different lineages are generated. And also the migration of the cells. In some cases, certainly in the central nervous system, we may need a therapeutic stem cell population to be capable of migrating 
quite a long distance. And if it's not, if it's not getting the right extrinsic signals, or if it doesn't have the proper intrinsic programming and state to receive those signals, it may not be capable of migration. And then we may end up with a cell that fails in the context of repair. So an example of this is shown in this slide. So there's three panels that say zero days post-injury, nine days post-injury, 30 days post-injury, one on top of one another. This is all the same cell line transplanted into the same spinal cord injury model, into the same location in the spinal cord, but at different times after spinal cord injury. Everything in those panels that's brown is a human neural stem cell. And if you look at where the brown is distributed, you can see pretty obviously that it's not the same. It doesn't take an educated eye to view that. In the very top panel where it says zero days post-injury, that's acute. The cells that we transplanted are migrating, they're moving in towards the injury epicenter at the very center, and they form a dense plexus of cells that is behaving very differently than the cells that we see in the lower panels. And the only thing that's different, because the donor cells are the same, is the niche that they're seeing because of timing. So there are altered extrinsic signals that are in that niche, and those are affecting the behavior of the cells. And in fact, that has consequences for whether or not we see repair enabled by those cells. In the top panel, the cells failed to yield repair. In the bottom two, where we're transplanting at a delayed time point, now those cells are successful. Why? So understanding those extrinsic cues becomes really important. I'm going to thin slice through a lot of data from my lab over the years um, where we've tried to focus on understanding the difference between those environments. One thing that we knew and became clear early on is that there's a tremendous amount of inflammation that's influencing the central nervous system after a traumatic injury, and that is changing over time. And so we went on to investigate a number of the molecules that are involved in that. One of them that we became really interested in was called C1Q. So without giving a lot of detail about C1Q, I just want to highlight a take-home that we found and just was published about a week ago, in fact, in eLife, showing that C1Q is an immune molecule in that early acute niche where cells might fail is the extrinsic signal that is dictating how those stem cells behave and whether they're capable of repair or not. So how do we figure that out? Well, in science, we did something called an unbiased forward screen to identify transmembrane receptor proteins that could be partners for C1Q. What that means in English is that we went on a fishing expedition. And really the idea here is we used C1Q as a protein as bait, and we looked for what things neural stem cells expressed on their cell surface that were capable of binding it with high affinity. And we showed that there were five proteins of particular interest. I'm going to tell you about just one of them today. And we looked at those proteins, showed that they could signal using C1Q to neural stem cells, that if we disrupted that signaling, that we would alter the behavior of those neural stem cells in a dish. We showed that C1Q and those receptors, here is shown CD44, bound to one another at the surface of the cell membrane. That's what you see is the little red dots. And then we asked the question of what happens if we, instead of allowing those interactions to happen, if we blocked either at the level of the receptor by taking it away, called a knockout, or we blocked the C1Q, the extrinsic signal that was present in the environment. 
And so we wanted to test what the functional role for these extrinsic signaling, C1Q, to these receptors here, CD44, would be when we tested in vivo and not just in vitro. So here, blocking again at the level of the receptor, we see this same type of cell behavior where they're clustering in towards the center. That's alleviated when we knock out the receptor, and in fact, we convert to repair when we look at functional locomotor recovery. If we do the opposite experiment and block the extrinsic signal itself, the C1Q, here it looks the same way that I showed previously in terms of the wild type, but blocking the C1Q, in fact, we block that accumulation at the center of the spinal cord, and again, we convert to the potential for repair. So this tells us that in a very meaningful way, extrinsic signals can influence capacity for a stem cell to mediate repair after transplantation, at least in the case of spinal cord injury. So understanding those signaling pathways tells us that we have a new path to be able to think about how to augment the capacity of these cells to behave in not just an in vivo setting, but in a clinical translation setting. Now, I mentioned also the other parameter that we're interested in and I think is important are intrinsic factors that affect the ability of human neural stem cells to enable repair and recovery. So one question that underlies that is how different are different human neural stem cell lines? Well, actually, while we wanted to look at this, this turned out to be really difficult to tell because there are very few tissue-derived human neural stem cell lines or comparisons that have been made between them. So with CIRM support, we developed additional new lines first to set in our lab and then using CGMP-compatible protocols and CGMP techniques to enable testing so those would be clinically relevant going forward. So how much variation is there? I mentioned a number of things about extrinsic and intrinsic signaling that were important. One included stem cell self-renewal or stemness. And these are six different lines compared in terms of their capacity. And you can see that they're widely variant. Differentiation fate is another factor that we can look at. Again, all you need to do is look at these bars to get the sense of how different these six different cell lines are and the same in terms of migration. So is there also that same variation in terms of what the repair capacity of these cells is for spinal cord injury? And so we transplanted all six lines and controls in parallel. And the answer is yes. In fact, out of these six lines, only two cell lines, this one and this one, met criteria for consistently demonstrating locomotor recovery of function in a chronic cervical spinal cord injury model. So what do we do with that? Well, we can't go forward very effectively in terms of a clinical setting if we don't know how the lines that we're using are going to behave. So we set as our goal for this particular project to use these lines and the new ones we developed to make a profile that would help us to be able to predict whether a candidate cell line would be efficacious for a given function, in our case, chronic spinal cord injury. And the way we did that was to generate these lines in parallel using the same protocols, CGMP compliant, grow them up again in parallel, testing them under growth conditions, differentiation conditions, or after in vivo transplantation to see if they were efficacious. Surprisingly, just comparing growth conditions 
and differentiation conditions in terms of the gene expression profiles, we saw some cases, which is exactly what we had hoped for, where there were just incredible switches in cell lines that didn't work, almost no expression, and cell lines that did work very high expression, or the opposite, in cell lines that failed on efficacy testing, very high expression, or in cell lines that were successful in efficacy testing, very low expression. And this differential gene expression actually gave us a shockingly small number of genes, at least under growth conditions and even under differentiation conditions, but 24 is a good number to be able to work with, where we thought we could develop a profile to be able to help us understand and predict in advance whether or not a given cell line would yield repair. And so we tested this. We applied this protocol to a new set of lines that we developed again with CERN funding and made those predictive calls about efficacy in advance of actually doing behavioral testing in vivo. So these are the four lines we tested, 182, 183, UCI 184, UCI 191. And here was our threshold for prediction of efficacy. We predicted two would be positive. And in fact, those same two lines in our in vivo testing were able to yield quite robust efficacy in chronic cervical spinal cord injury, whereas the other two lines where we predicted a negative call failed. That, we hope, will give us some new tools moving forward in terms of helping to understand intrinsic variation, because now we have a whole new set of lines to look at and be able to dig into that in a better way. It also gives us potentially a tool that we can really think about applying from a practical perspective in terms of monitoring cell lines, in terms of their expansion for clinical use, where we might be able to say with much more assurance moving forward into clinical trial that there's a good chance versus a not good chance of success. So I hope I've convinced you that understanding extrinsic and intrinsic control of stem cell behavior is important. It's important not just at the basic science level, but because it has very real implications in terms of our potential for success in moving forward ultimately to clinical translation. So with that, I'd like to thank a few folks for the um, DISC-2 project, which I just described on intrinsic factors, this was an enormous project. I can't emphasize how much work that was in a 30-month period of time. And I'd like to highlight a couple of people in particular, Katja Pilti, shown here, who developed our protocols for being able to develop CGMP-compliant lines, managed the whole project start to finish, and has been a tremendous collaborator at UCI. Anita Licatos, who is our gene jockey and has dealt with everything to do with RNA-seq analysis and really the very sophisticated methods that are needed to develop the profile. All the other folks who did um, the boots on the ground work and my longtime collaborator here, Brian Cummings, but Josh David, Crystal, uh, Rebecca Nishi, Chris Nelson, Javier Lape, and uh, Joseph Riccaro, and at UC Davis, Gerhard Barrow and Brian Fury, without whom this really would not have been possible. And then a much larger group of people who over time have contributed to all of our neural stem cell work, and in fact, looking at the extrinsic factors that I mentioned I'm very grateful to them, and uh, it's been a wonderful experience to have them as our team. Last of all, our support, CIRM, NIH, Wings for Life, and the Craig Nielsen Foundation in terms of support for this specific work. Thank you very much for your attention, and I look forward to the panel discussion.